ever wonder what your therapist is really thinking? Well, that's confidential. But in this podcast, a few of my therapist friends and me show you what it's really like inside of a mental health professional's brain. Hi, welcome to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, board certified counselor. We discuss books, movies, TV shows, motherhood, current events, clinical issues, mental illness, trauma, and our own personal lives. So if you want to know what we're thinking, come on in, take a listen. Come see what the world is like through the eyes of a therapist, the podcast that destigmatizes mental illness, humanizes therapists, and demystifies therapy. Hi, thanks so much for joining me, Crystal Martinez Acosta, on Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. If you don't follow me yet on Instagram, please do so at Through the Eyes of a Therapist pod. I asked you over the past couple of weeks on Instagram and Facebook to please submit your questions to me about mental health, therapy, and counseling. And many of you were able to do that over DM or comments, and many of them were very interesting. I've picked a few. I've curated a great selection of questions and comments for us to feature on today's podcast episode. So let's get started. Here are some listener questions. I've de-identified them. I'm not going to out you by name, and we're just going to answer them, go down the list, on a, I guess, first come, first serve basis. Whoever sent me this question first, I'll just go ahead and try to briefly answer it. We've only got about half an hour per episode. And so here we go. The first one that I received was on Instagram. And the question is, what's it like using EMDR? I'm assuming this is a question about what's it like to use EMDR as a therapist. And so I'll take a crack at it. I think being trained in EMDR initially is first a little bit weird. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. So when they first teach you about EMDR, it's all about the eye movements. When you're in training, they talk to you a little bit about the background of EMDR and Francine Shapiro the person who discovered EMDR and how eye movements and moving your eyes back and forth in a left to right fashion can kind of get you to calm down and get the emotional charge behind whatever it is you're thinking about to reduce a little bit. So that's an interesting concept to think about. And so it's different from a lot of different types of therapy, I guess, conventional talk therapies that you're taught about, right? Like so CBT, for example, where you're thought to rationalize or logic your way and talk your way through and think your way through something. And so this is kind of somatic in some ways. They ask you for body sensations related to like a traumatic event. And they ask you to move your eyes back and forth, focusing on those bodily sensations. They also ask you for feelings associated with the traumatic event. Um, they also ask you to think about core beliefs and thoughts related to the traumatic event. So it's a, a little bit more of a holistic approach. I really like using EMDR because it tends to be shorter as far as treatment goes for trauma. Um, 
and I feel it's really effective for treating trauma. So in my opinion, what it's like using EMDR at first, it's a little bit awkward because you do have to explain to your client how moving your eyes back and forth can heal your trauma Um, and really trying to make that association and the science clear to them um, without kind of freaking them out and making it sound like it's something so far-fetched. And after that awkwardness passes and you kind of have to convince them that this really works, then showing them after the first few sessions how there's relief and that sort of miraculous moment where they're able to get past some of the pain and hurt and integrate some of that trauma and understand where you were coming from, that is really a cool moment. So using EMDR is actually really, really neat. And seeing the effectiveness of it come through is really awesome. So that was a great question. Thanks for asking that. The next question from a listener and follower on Instagram is, what is it like being a supervisor? So I'm assuming that this is what they mean by supervisor. I'm a Texas board approved supervisor in the state of Texas. What you have to do to become fully licensed is gain 3000 hours of supervised practice under somebody who is called an LPCS, a licensed professional counselor supervisor. And somebody who has that designation is somebody who has earned five years of practice with their full license and somebody who has taken a 40-hour course on how to supervise other clinicians and understands the board rules and Texas ethics, Texas law, and how to support counselor development. So what it's like being a supervisor is really interesting because it takes it another level up from just client care. You are also not only aware of what is going on with your own clients, but also what is going on with your supervisee's clients, because you do want to make sure that they are doing right by their clients, they're treating their clients ethically, that they are treating their clients lawfully, that whatever they are doing to support their clients indirectly So those other hours that they are not seeing their clients face to face, whatever they're doing with their paperwork, whatever they're doing within their agency, that they're following all of the rules and laws, such as confidentiality, what they're doing with their documentation, how they are speaking with their colleagues, what they're doing in their training, and all of that other stuff is lawful and ethical, right? So it's kind of a level up. A lot of people don't want to be supervisors because of the liability that it comes with. Yes, whatever your supervisee does, you are also liable for. So there's that. And a lot of people don't want that extra liability. But I believe that somebody's got to take on that responsibility, right? Because future counselors need that guidance and need that support. And so good counselors need good supervisors. And in order to become a good counselor, you need good supervision and you need somebody to guide you and somebody to support you and somebody who will allow you to make mistakes and teach you how to repair those mistakes and teach you how to make up for those mistakes and understand how you can prevent those mistakes again in the future 
all of that other stuff. So everybody deserves a chance. And so supervision, in my opinion, has always been a very important process in my own growth. Um, And so being a supervisor is a really important job that I take really seriously. But at the same time, I believe that a good supervisor provides a safe environment, not only physically, but emotionally safe for the supervisee so that they can be themselves and they can be 100% honest with you in their thoughts and feelings and their behaviors about their clients so that they're able to grow as much as possible and become the best therapist that they can be. And in the end, what this does is this creates a really good therapist and somebody who goes out there in the public who does the most good. Right. And so that's what we want to do ultimately is protect the public from bad counselors. Right. So good supervisors make healthy communities overall. So that's what it's like being a supervisor. That was a great question. Thanks so much for asking that. All right. So another question that we received from Facebook this time um, on our instant messenger or yeah, instant messenger on Facebook was what is it like to be sitting all day? So as a counselor, it's interesting because yes, most of the time we are in an office setting, sitting all day, seeing clients. That's just the model that we've been taught. That's something that we do. And most of the time, that's what you see on TV and in movies. And that's just something that We've been trained to do, right? Even when I was in graduate school back in 2009, 2010, 2011, that's how we were taught to counsel people is sitting on a couch or sitting on a chair and the client is sitting across from you. And so there were not really any other types of ways to see clients. You know, there wasn't really walk and talk therapy that was really being supported or taught at the time. And um, so what is it like sitting all day as a counselor? Well, you better get yourself a really good chair, um, some lumbar support, because this is something that if you're going to make it your career, you're going to be sitting a lot. And if you're going to be following this conventional model of therapy, you probably are going to be sitting up to seven, eight hours a day. And if you work overtime or you work unconventional hours and you're working longer than eight hours a day in an office setting, you're going to be sitting a lot. So I would say invest in a really good chair. Um, That's my advice. Don't go for the clearance section on this one. You know, for me, sitting all day has not really been that great on my body. As they say, sitting is the new smoking. Apparently your risk for stuff goes way up when you sit a lot. You know, heart disease, um, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, things like that. So eating healthy has been really important. Getting my daily vegetable has been really important. You know, drinking water. I know that one of my therapist friends who you have heard on the podcast before, Elisa would always encourage me to walk. And I hated walking when I was working at the agency, but it was kind of a joke between us about like how I didn't like walking. Anyways, so sitting as a therapist all day is not fun. But there are ways to kind of get in the steps, right? So walking between clients, getting a standing desk so that you can do your notes in between clients. Um, If you're doing telehealth sessions, you could probably get a standing desk to do your telehealth sessions because the client's not going to be caring if you're sitting or standing, right? As long as they can see you from right about here on up, 
and that would be pretty good. So I think sitting all day can lead to back problems as it did in my case. I think more recently, I have started doing more sessions, doing walk and talk therapy, which provides an opportunity for a client and myself to get out of an office setting and into a nature setting. And that requires a special type of consent form where they have to consent to being out in an area where we might be seen in public. Confidentiality could definitely be broken in that space, right? So they have to be aware of the risks and the benefits of that type of setting. And they have to kind of sign away on that, right? Um, They set the pace for the walking. They also set the pace for if they want to sit down on a bench or something. But it offers a few benefits, right? So it gets them into the fresh air. It gets them walking and moving. But it also gives them that bilateral stimulation that we were talking about in EMDR, right? So it causes that like relaxation response when they're talking about something difficult. It also kind of creates that less intense eye contact for some people who can't really tolerate that where I'm just like looking at them in the face and we have like a side by side walking situation going on. So some some clients prefer it and it's really nice. So it just depends on the client and if they're willing to consent to that. But I mean, sitting all day is just something that we were taught to do and it might not be the most conducive thing for every client. And I think it's something that we have to start talking about deconstructing in our profession. So thanks for that question, anonymous uh, listener on Facebook. And let's move on to the next question. All right. This next question comes from someone on Instagram. A listener on Instagram asks me, what is it like to listen to people's problems all day? So this is an interesting question because listening to people's problems all day is a simplified version of what I do. I wish that is all I did. (laughs) But I do much more than that as a therapist. Um, Yes, that is part of my job. Listening to someone is part of my job. But active listening would be a little bit more accurate of a description of what I do. So listening is part of a skill set. And listening requires also digesting the information in a critical fashion, right? So as I'm listening to the person speak about their problem, to me, I'm trying to also visualize or conceptualize is the actual word that we use in counseling. I am conceptualizing it through a specific lens, right? So that lens that I'm looking at the problem through could be a theory, right? And so most of the time, I'm looking at it through maybe a trauma lens, right? So what did this person go through and how is it influencing their behavior? How is it influencing their feelings? What did they go through when they were maybe younger than 18 years old? Um, Did they have an adverse childhood experience? And is that why they're behaving a certain way? Is that why they're having a certain reaction to maybe the certain current circumstance. And that's why they're having this really strong reaction right now. Or are they misdiagnosed with something, right? So for example, people who come to me who've been diagnosed with ADHD, depression, anxiety, is it really 
that they've been through a trauma or they have a history of childhood trauma or something like that. And they're exhibiting trauma responses and behaviors and they're being misdiagnosed, right? So these are things that I'm thinking of. And it's kind of like if you were to visualize it, if you're a visual person, it's kind of like this web or this puzzle, right? And you're trying to put together the pieces of the puzzle. So as I'm listening to people speak, it's not simply listening to people's problems all day, quote unquote. It's really conceptualizing it, putting the pieces together, looking at it in the form of a web or a map and trying to put the pieces where they belong, organizing the information for the person. I'm also co-regulating with the person. So if they're escalating in anger or anxiety or they're dysregulating, right, in sadness, they're becoming like a hypomanic or they're dissociating. I'm trying to also not just follow them down that rabbit hole, right? I want to be with them and empathize with them or even sympathize with them. But I also want to stay grounded as a person so that I don't lose myself in their emotions, right? So that can be emotionally exhausting, that push and pull, engaging with the energy of that client. I'm also watching my body language. I'm also watching my facial expressions to make sure that I don't get carried away in their story or I don't come across as judgmental with something, right, that maybe they might share is very shocking or something that really does have a lot of shock value and maybe other people in their life and circumstances have reacted very poorly or overreacted and I definitely don't want to be that person in their life, right? I want this place and space and this person to be emotionally safe and regulated. So I have to really work on being that person with my tone of voice, with my body language, with my facial expressions. So listening to people's problems, quote unquote, has then become this multifaceted, multi-angular activity, right? And it's quite a lot of work. It's not just using your ears. It's using your whole being and requires a lot of energy. So that's what it's like listening to people's problems all day. And that's just probably a snippet. I've missed probably a lot of the other part of the answer, but it takes a lot of brain power, a lot of emotion regulation and body regulation, things of the sort. So yes, I need to have my coffee. Yes, I need to eat well. Yes, I need to sleep well. Um, as a highly sensitive person and a highly sensitive therapist, I need to have alone time. I need to have time with my loved ones that is not too rowdy a few hours before session, uh, things like that. I also need to have like wind down time at the end of the day and things of that nature so that I feel ready to tackle the day and ready to see my clients. So that's just my lifestyle. That's how it goes, at least for me. And every therapist is different and has a different tolerance for different types of issues. And as a trauma therapist, I definitely do have to watch a little bit more how I care for myself so that I can care for others. So thanks for asking that question. That was an important one for sure. Okay, another question from an Instagram follower was, what's it like when you're burned out? Ooh, this is a good one. I think the experience is different for every therapist. And for me, I can tell you that I have burned out approximately twice in my about 11 year career, and it is never fun. However, in my experience personally, when I have burned out, 
it was pretty bad. <laughs> um, I knew the signs of burning out. And for me, they were, I was becoming more irritable at work. I needed to vent a lot more often to my colleagues and coworkers. I actually, I think, cried in my office a couple of times. I was becoming a lot more triggered by certain things, places, people, and situations. And I think I was taking the mental load of work home. So I was thinking about work at home so much so that I think I was dreaming about work. And so I knew that it was time for me to either find another job or quit or take a really, really long ass vacation. And so for me, burnout was just a really bad place to be. It took me a really long time to recover from burnout. I think as a highly sensitive therapist and a highly sensitive person, it just took me a really long time. So I had to engage in my own therapy. I had to engage in um, massage, in exercise, in eating well, eating plant-based foods, you know, going to my doctor, my physical doctor to get some medication for different things that were going on for me physically. So I had to take a really holistic approach in my burnout recovery. And I also had to just completely change locations or job duties in those both situations, in those two situations where I did burnout. So that's what it was like for me when I was burnt out completely. Another question from a Facebook follower was, what is it like when you have to cancel appointments? Ooh, that's never really fun. Um, you know, when a client has to cancel an appointment, if they cancel with more than 24 hours in advance, no hay problema, you know, things come up, you know, no fees are incurred upon the client. If they cancel with less than 24 hours, I have a nominal fee that they have to pay. And if they no-show, then there is a no-show fee of usually the full session rate. Um, when I have to cancel, I hate canceling on my clients because then it's kind of like that episode of Seinfeld. I reference Seinfeld a lot in my podcast episodes, but there's an episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza goes to his, I think, physical therapist and the physical therapist cancels their appointment on him. And he's like, so then where's my no-show fee um, and charges the physical therapist like $80 or something. And it's just really funny because he's like, well, where's my payment? And he's like just being a smart ass, right? But anyways, it's kind of like, yeah, well, what do I owe my client, right? Like, is there a reverse fee when that happens? And it, yeah, it, it's kind of not fair. For the most part, people really understand if there is a cancellation on my part, uh, I really try not to cancel if I can help it. I try to reschedule them within the same day or within 24 hours. I really try to respect my client's time because I understand that it can be really difficult to make it to an appointment. But which is the reason I like telehealth, right? Because people can just show up whenever they can, wherever they can, and they don't have to really drive anywhere to make it to their appointment. Um, not that that justifies any of this, but it kind of makes it a little bit better in my eyes. But yeah, it's just, it's kind of cringy overall when I have to cancel on a client. Yikes. My last question that I will answer for today is how to shop around for a therapist. A really good place to start is Google, right? So therapists in my zip code, you can type in zip code. 
you can go to psychologytoday.com that has a huge catalog of many therapists in your area. You can also probably go to clinicians of color. You can go to Latinx therapy. They also have a giant catalog of therapists who are Latinos or Latinas who might be bilingual. There are also, you know, many different therapists who advertise on social media nowadays who you may find in the algorithm somewhere. And a lot of places might refer you via word of mouth. So if you want to ask maybe your doctor or a nurse practitioner or if you already see a psychiatrist, many of us have reached out to them as therapists and let them know that we are taking openings. Um, that we are open for new clients or what our specialty is. And a lot of them know who to send our way. And that might be a good way to get a good referral list going. But I think another good way to think about this is if you need a specific type of therapy, right? So for example, in psychology today, you can go to the different drop down menus and specify as much as possible what it is that you might need. Another good way to do that is if you're going to be using your insurance, you can do that type of specification in your insurance company's website. So, for example, if you have Blue Cross Blue Shield or Cigna, you can go into the website and say that you need a behavioral health specialist who um, specializes or works with trauma or with children or with um, obsessive compulsive disorder. And most of those specializations are listed on those types of websites. So you can go ahead and do that. Plus, if you're using your insurance, it will already be listed out if they're providers who are covered under your insurance. So that's pretty good, too. So that would be a good way to shop around for a therapist. Also, if you can schedule a consultation with your therapist before you start seeing them. For example, I schedule free 15-minute consultation calls with my potential clients to make sure that we're a match. And sometimes we're not a match with each other. And I let them know, you know, I don't think that this is a good match for whatever XYZ reason. It could be because of the specialty that they're looking for is not within my repertoire. Maybe I'm just not qualified to treat that problem. Maybe I'm not licensed to treat that problem or certified or I don't have enough experience. Or I know somebody who would be a better match for them and I let them know, hey, call this person. I know that they would be a better match for you. So thanks so much for engaging with me on social media and sending me your questions. I really do appreciate it so much. Again, follow me on Instagram at Through the Eyes of a Therapist Pod or at Clarity EP. And of course, you can always write to me via email. Hello at Through the Eyes of a Therapist.org. And I hope to see you around at the next episode. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And please connect with me, Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, on Instagram at Through the Eyes of a Therapist pod. More information about booking me for therapy or training can be found there. Until next time, keep on fighting the stigma and go to therapy. I'll see you next time.